Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Denny Grimes with Denny Grimes & Company in Fort Myer, Florida. Last year, he closed 120 transactions with a total sales volume of $30 million. His average sales price was $245,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. He has a four-member team, one buyer agent, one listing agent, one client care manager, and one team leader. Denny Grimes is the team leader of Denny Grimes & Company. He's been an agent for 32 years and sold over $500 million worth of homes in his career. In this call, Danny talks about his roller coaster ride career, just missing the Million Dollar Club his first year, selling 70 homes per year by himself before he hired his first buyer agent, building a 26 member team that sold 450 homes worth $150 million and netted over $1 million in profit shrinking to two people after the median price fell 75% during the Great Recession, rebuilding his new team and the lessons learned, characteristics of ideal team members, how he generates 85% of his business by repeating referrals, his marketing plan for past clients and sphere of influence, the magic birthday card that gets referrals and updates your database, scripts for asking for referrals, Branding yourself as the expert, the radical pricing philosophy that maximizes the sales price of your listings, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Denny. Hi. Good to talk to you, Mike. Hey, Denny. It's great to have you with us. Denny, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, I got into real estate pretty early, as you mentioned in the intro. I've been doing it for over 30 years. So I was out of college a few years. I had a double major in business uh, management and marketing. And what's interesting is I took no sales electives because I said, no, I don't want to be a salesman. Everything a salesman was going door-to-door selling Bibles or brushes. And I didn't want to do that. So I I figured I'd take my business skills and developed the family business. I had a, a debt was in the, the, the nursery and landscape business. For anyone that's worked with their folks, uh, that can be um, um, that can be a reality TV show. And so that didn't work out really well. Uh, I learned a lot of lessons. And I thought, okay, well, my father-in-law, just married at the time, uh, he has a construction business, so I was going to take all those tools and skills and build up his construction business. And I learned early on that I am the type of person that basically, you know, for me coming in and, and wanting to take somebody else's business to a new level against that wasn't their dream. It was my dream. I was better off going into an industry that allowed me to do what I wanted to do and become my own boss, which is one reason why a lot of people get into real estate. So I had I had dabbled in business in the landscape nursery uh, realm and the construction business. 
from a business standpoint. And um, I know which end of the shovel to use, and I, I work my way through school, so I'm no stranger to hard work or calluses on my hand. The interesting thing, though, Mike, is my, my pathway into real estate was totally unexpected. And that's the way life works. And I can tell you I've learned some lessons along the way over the last 30 years that sometimes basically things that I did not intend to happen happened, and I've learned from it and benefited. Number one is I was raised by my grandparents. My grandparents had my grandmother had three rules for me. Number one, I couldn't go to movies because that was a theater was somewhere bad. I couldn't wear corduroy pants. And to this day, I don't know why. And the third thing is I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to go in other people's houses because that was rude. And so I, I know that my grandmother, every time I go in a listening appointment, I think about my grandmother and how she must be rolling over in her grave because I'm going into people's houses for a living. <laughs> the other thing that is interesting is that I was working in the construction field with my father-in-law and a friend of the family came down. He worked in a different business, but he had a real estate license in real estate part-time. Sound familiar? And so he started talking to me about all this money he was going to make on this one transaction that he, that he was working on. And I didn't know you could make money in real estate. Now I'm a college graduate with a double major. I had no earthly idea you could make money in real estate. And so that planted a seed in my mind. I said, you know what? I'm going to go get my real estate license because it seems like a perfect opportunity for me to be my own boss and make a lot of money. Now that guy never did sell any, any real estate, but he planted the seed in me, which began my career at age 26. Now, when you got into the real estate business, did you go full-time or part-time, and did you have a fast start or a slow start? No, I jumped in with both feet. And back in those days, you, you know, you wanted to, uh, and I don't know if it's fast or slow, you know, the, back in those days, you, the, the award you wanted was to be a member of the Million Dollar Club. And, and it was really, you had to literally sell a million dollars for the property. And again, prices weren't what they are today, although <laughs> with the market correction, we came close to those prices. And in my very first year of real estate, I sold $960,000 of the real estate. So I almost made the Million Dollar Club my very first year. I think it was a pretty good start. What did you attribute that fast start to? I go back to the comment I just made is understanding which end of the shovel to work. I, my whole family, being Midwestern, blue collar, strong work, work ethic, that was ingrained in me. I started working at 14 years old for money, and I w would work. I mean, my, my buddies would go out and play and take money from their parents and go spend it. I, w I would be making money and saving money. And so I, I attribute it to really hard work. And even back then, uh, I remember uh, Tommy Hopkins, who everybody in real estate, the old-timers anyway, certainly remember Tommy Hopkins, had a huge influence on me. I became a learning magnet. Now, I had a car, but back then I didn't have, you know, it was just in the air out of eight tracks. They had cassettes, but I didn't have a cassette player in my car yet. So I went and bought, went to Sears and bought a portable cassette recorder or a, t a player. And everywhere I went, I had a tape in my, uh, in that cassette. It was Tommy Hopkins or it was Zig Ziglar. And I basically became a learning sponge. Well, let's fast forward to today. How many homes did you sell last year? Well, my team basically, and I've seen some ups and downs. We'll get into that conversation, I'm sure, a, a little bit later. We did a, about 120 or so. Our, our goal, and this year we're going to be about the same number. There's been a couple of things that happened throughout the year that have taken us off our pace. We were going to be somewhere about 150 or 60. Our goal was 200. We had a couple of things happen. The difference in my team now as compared to what it was when I was st first started building a team is – 
you know, it, everyone kind of goes through the cycle is that they're, the level number one is I do it. Then when you get the team mentality, you want to say we do it. And then when you want to grow into a team, basically, so then you can basically allow your team to run so you can do some other things, whether the other business ventures or maybe, maybe some people want to retire. I don't want to retire. But the third level is they do it. And, and so there, my business career was I do it. And it was, I was very successful. I was doing about 70 transactions by myself before I had my first buyer specialist. Then I had, we do it. I built a team of 26 people. We had a, somewhere between 400 and 450 homes, $150 million of the business. And I was in production. Now the most challenging of the three is they do it because that's 100% reliant on the people you hire and how well you hold them accountable. And are you currently working through the they do it model? Is that what you're running now? Yes, over and over and over again. And so the skill the skill level that 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 I'm developing is a better job of finding talented people and putting the right people in the right seats on the bus, having the model to follow and allowing them to do it. So there's nothing, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not ashamed of production. I mean, obviously, the average production, you know, could be less than probably, uh, I guess, for an agent, maybe five or six million. So I'm well over that. I'm well off the pace of what my my peak production is. However, I am doing it with a model that will allow me to do some other things. And so it is it is like reinventing the wheel in, in a way that I'm really I'm really stepping out of production to allow my team members to do it. It's rare that I go on a listing appointment. It's rare that I'll negotiate a contract. I am, I am pouring myself into people, and I've had some turnover, and this is, this is part of the process, finding the right, the right people to sit in the right seats. But when I, as I'm filling the right, the right people, it's allowing, allowing tremendous leverage for me to go and do some other ventures, teaching, speaking, et cetera, which, which is my passion right now. How long have you been working on this model of they do it? That's a great question. Here where we are in Southwest Florida, there were three markets across the country that really felt the blunt of the real estate bubble. The three biggest were Southwest Florida, Fort Myers specifically, Phoenix, Las Vegas. Now, a lot of people in the country felt it, but we had the the fastest run-up and we had the biggest fall. So, And that really took place at 2005-2006. I was running at peak capacity in, at 2005-2006. I just bought a million-dollar building, put half a million dollars into the in, in, leasehold improvements, had a team of 26, and we were like, it, it, we almost needed a leaf blower to blow the commission checks away from the door so we could get in and out. It was like amazing. However, when when the bubble burst, it was like somebody yelled fire in a crowded room. I went from a team of 26 down to two. And the market didn't bottom until uh, 2009. To give you some perspective on this, we had a, me- a median sales price at the peak of the market of $322,000, and when the market bottomed, it was at $79,000. Wow. So, you know, you can put a calculator to that, and that's a huge fall. Another way to look at it is that, you know, being in Southwest Florida, we're right on the Gulf Coast, very desirable area, second home, vacation, etc. If you came into our market just before the bubble burst in 2006 and were wanting to look at something under 100,000, there would be 12 homes to show, and you probably had, they had, none of them had indoor plumbing, just 12. However, three years later, if you wanted something under $100,000, we had over 4,000 homes available. That's how ugly our market got. 
And so a lot of folks that were in real estate obviously got out of real estate. There's a, there's, there was, it was a, it was a tsunami. So the team of 26, it went down to a team of two. I'm in a 12,000 square foot building. And so at that point, I had to make some changes. And so really since about 2010, nine or 10, I got back into production with my team of two and, you know, started plugging holes in the boat and, and started building again. Denny, did you notice the shift in the REO and did you go down that path? That's a great question. You know, everybody raised their hands for REO. And basically the REO business made some unknown agents here pretty wealthy during that time. And and there was a few people, one member on my team, you know, uh, was able to go through the hoops to get some through one of the lenders, et cetera. But most of the REO business went to a friend of a friend who had a friend who played golf with somebody who was a friend of the the banker. And you never could really kind of jockey. And I know there was companies and everyone kind of, you know, advertised, hey, you want, you know, you want REO business, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, it made unknown agents known overnight. The path that I took, I was the first one in this area to go through the certified distressed property expert certification. And so, that's the the model that I followed. The REO business everyone was chasing. No one was really chasing short sales. Short sales, and early on in the short sale process, you know nobody wanted them because it was like a listing that uh, like a years ago there was this barge of garbage that went from New York to up and down the Atlantic. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted a short sale because it was such a cumbersome process. That got streamlined, and so we did really well with the short sale process during the time that they were prevalent. We had an 80% distress market here. So 80% distress, 10% equity. And the only thing that would top that is we had 100% of agents distressed, as well as the sellers. So the REO business came and gone, and now the, the, that whole market, Mike, has been totally reversed. Now there's probably you know 10% distressed, 90% equity. So those people that got into REO did really well. But they they would have had to retool to survive now. So you've been working on this model of building a team where you are not an active producer on the team. You're more a supervisor or even put somebody in that role. Do you feel that you have mastered that model? No, not at all. I am still taking lessons from a lot of folks and going to a lot of training and the skills that I am that I am working on now have to do with identifying, hiring, and leading talented people. I understand that more now than I've ever understood it in the past. And you know, I learned early early on that you know through leverage you can leverage your you know they talk about listings listings leverage yeah yes leverage is a great word in business particularly in real estate and if you want to leverage. If you want to give, you know, 20 horsepower for for a five horsepower pool, the ways you do that is through people and or technology. And when you look at what most people and the mistakes that I've made when you hire someone, I mean, what the first thing people do when they want to like hire an assistant is, well, they'll look inside their own house. Well, how about a sister, a brother, a husband, a spouse? And they they we generally make all the mistakes wrong. We hire for the wrong reasons. We hire the wrong the wrong people. And when you stop to quantify the cost of a bad hire, it is tremendous. 
And so what I what I'm learning to do, and I'm following some some models that other people that are teaching this, is that I'm slowing down and looking for the right individual. And it's a lot like, and here in Southwest Florida, we have great weather, but some people don't like the summer, so they go into the mountains, the Smoky Mountains, for example, and get cool in the summertime. And then when you go to the mountains, the you take the kids ruby mining and when you go ruby mining they have this trough of water it's kind of like panning for gold but they give you a bucket of nothing but mud and you got to go through that and sift through there and every now and then you have to you have uh, several buckets of mud you're going to find a couple little gemstones that's what talent is all about and you look at you know and i'm a sports fan and it, 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 you look at the nfl what do they have invested in scouting in recruiting to find the right people and all the assets and the resources they throw at that, look how, how many times they get it wrong. So people are where it's at. Last night I was a, at a charity event and I ran into a, a lady that was in another industry. She just got into real estate. She's working for a um, 100% company here in town. And she was, I said, how's it going? And she looked at me, well, not so good. I said, well, okay, well, you know, talk to me. Tell me about it. Well, well, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to team up with this other lady over here, and we're going to team up, and we're going to form a team. <laughs> and I said, okay, tell me about that. And so the issue is that people think that, well, that just because they form a team, two people come together. Okay, who's going to generate the business? Now you have two people. And, and the worst thing that I see is that agents, they, they, get, they, they, they think that, that there's safety in numbers. There's really not. The numbers have to be the right people. And there have been people, Mike, that have lived before us, and I don't care what type of business you want to build. If you want to just sell a million dollars a year or $5 million a year so you can spend more time with the grandkids, there is a model for that. If you want to sell $100 million or $400 million or $900 million, there's a model for that. And to go out, and, and so I'm learning. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I just have to follow the system, and it will work for me. And that's what I'm learning because I'm used to doing it myself. Now I'm having to find the right people and train them. Denny, what have you what have you concluded as far as the characteristics of the people that you now want on your team? What are you looking for? Okay, well, I'll speak to the agents out there that maybe want to hire someone or grow their team. The first thing I do, it, it, the greatest one of the greatest post school lessons uh, and, and concepts that I've learned is personality assessment. The one that we like uh, here, and it's used a lot in real estate, is called the DISC, the D-I-S-C. I don't know if other folks on your show uh, have talked about it. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. If anyone wants to talk to me about joining my team, the first thing I do, and there's several sources, I happen to send them to Tony Robbins' website, and he offers a free DISC profile, is I have them go take the profile test. And the first thing that I'm looking for is I want to see what their profile is. Statistically speaking, certain profiles have a higher propensity for, for success in certain roles. Now, it's not foolproof. In fact, they, don't, they say that this profile is only about 25%. There's a lot of other things to consider, like background and experience and education, you know, all those normal things. Well, that's where I start. And when you, when you start with that, basically, in, in, in this market, you know, if you want to hire someone, I'm talking about administrative there's a lot of folks out there in our market that would, would apply. And so the first, the first qualifier that I use, Mike, is I, I have them take that profile test. If they can't find it on the Internet, that's a pretty good clue that I don't want them working for me. Because all they have to do is <laughs> Google it. If they fight me on it, I've had applicants say, 
well, I'm not going to take that thing. I just want to come talk to you. You know what? There's a nice word in the real estate. It's called next. If they don't want to add, follow a simple instructions that I want them to do, that's free, that, that's a qualifier. And if they take the test and send it in, now, now what I've done is created a system. I'm only going to talk to folks that the profiles come back within a certain range and, and because it's just, you know, all we have is our time. So that's a very, very, very good thing to, to sort through folks, even from a selling, uh, selling role. And it's amazing how many people don't do that. Let's talk about a few of the, the members that you are bringing in, have brought in, and tend to bring in, and which of the DISC profiles, personality profiles, they would, they would fit under. So tell us a couple of the members of your team and what is the ideal profile. I have an admin person who is basically the, the DISC. And again, I, for, for, for people who don't know that, the um, DISC, the four different profiles, D is, is dominant, I is influencer, uh, S is the uh, stable or so, uh, socializer, and the C is the controller. Admin, you want someone basically. There's nothing wrong with have, having some D in them because they have to. They have to basically change, take charge. But you want someone who's who likes people that won't make them all mad, and you want to be somewhat accurate. So from an administrative side, you want somebody who has probably some S and some C. From a production side, the listing and sales, I've lucked out. I've got two quality young people. One's my daughter. The other is a young man that I, I saw in a different industry, and I actually I actually went after him. And that's a little tidbit for those that want to hire. Don't strictly look at real estate because the talent is going to be anywhere, and they could be in another, another, another job looking for an opportunity. This gentleman is uh, mid-level, mid to upper on D, high on I, and so he's great with people. He loves to speak, loves to be in front of people, he's a great socializer, people like him, has enough D in him to um, basically, you know, push through obstacles. And then, then uh, my daughter, who's kind of a chip off me, uh, I'm a high D. So basically that's a driver, that's a director, very goal-oriented, not quite a high on the eye. So she's not, people don't talk to us as much at parties. She's a higher eye than me. Everyone will go to my Tony, who's my other gentleman, who is a lot more fun than we are. So I look for the what we call the D or the I when I when I do the profile for a sales uh, any anyone in the sales role. There's no bad profiles; those just generally have proven to be over time the profile that that they will not only be in a role they can do because we can do anything if we need to. They'll be in a role they'll enjoy doing. And that's what you want because you don't want to have to go and hire someone, train them, and then them be unhappy and then leave because now you're going back and you're running the marathon all over again. And there's nothing fun about that. Denny, you've already had a large operation with 26 people. You're running at full steam. You had the market. The rug was pulled out from underneath you. And so that, that's a dramatic outside force. But it sounds like the team itself was, was running and operating fine. It was built up. Did you follow this DISC personality profile assessment in building that original team? Yes, we did, but we didn't adhere to it as strictly as we do now. Because when, if you basically uh, are having a lot of businesses coming in more than you can handle, your criteria for hiring is lowered because you need all hands on deck and then some. And so, so we did use it, but it, we did, you know, if, if it didn't quite meet 100% of the qualifications, we said, well, we need the hands, we need the body, let's hire them, and we'll worry about it later. 
and um, we lucked out. We got some great people, and then we had some that you know weren't so great. But someone at that time was better than nobody because the phone was ringing like crazy and the market was just totally active. When the market changed, we had a chance to slow down a little bit and build it back up right. Now, the market is better than it was. It's rational. It's not crazy like it was in 2005 and 2006. We are, we are attempting to build it with a very strong foundation because I don't want to keep doing this. And I've had some turnover in the last couple of years with a buyer specialist, and it, it really takes a chunk out of your momentum and a chunk out of your production. Well, Denny, I want to back up for just a second and talk about, first of all, where are you? Where is Fort Myers, Florida? Well, we're on the West Coast, and if you were to go down and figure, every, most people know where Orlando is. It's like dead center in the state, and Orlando's in the center. Uh, if you go due west, you go kind of into Tampa, and go south. The next city is Sarasota. The next one is Fort Myers and then Naples. And that's about it for the West Coast. Sanibel Island, Captiva Island are all in our marketplaces. So a lot of people would know that because, um, you know, we have an international airport here and tourism is a huge, a huge part of our market. Fort Myers is on the coast. It's a coastal city. Yes, we're right on the Gulf of Mexico, right? And we have beaches here. Do you know what the population is there? We run about 650,000 uh, full-time, and then during the season, we'll go over a million. You've started to tell us about the market and how it changed over the, the last few years. Currently, what is your market? That's a great question, and I'm kind of a purist on this, so I will give you the, the answer you're looking for, and then I'll just layer that a little bit because it's a topic I think agents should really understand, and that is in our market. Lee County, Fort Myers, generally speaking, prices are going up. The median sales price, different than the average, the median sales price is about $180,000. There's some upward pressure on there, probably anywhere from 12 to 15% year over year, but we're starting to see the, the increase decrease a little bit. It's starting to level, which is a good thing. Average time on the market, again, the answer you're probably looking for, probably around 70 days. I don't put a lot of stock into that, but that's... That's it. Now, I gave you the answer that you probably were looking for that most agents would give. Here's, here's the thing. One of the lessons that I've learned in this up and down market, and since the Internet has been injected in the last 10 or 15 years in real estate, we no longer, agents no longer have to worry about being the experts in marketing. Our, our stock and trade, our competitive advantage is to be an expert on the market. So when you ask me how the market's doing, generally speaking, I understand why you're asking that. But I want agents to know when, when, the, when a potential buyer or seller asks them that question, they need to stop and pause a little bit because if they answer that, the market's great, it's moving up. The person that's asking the question could have a home in the segment of the market that's not doing so well. So when you go and sit with them and you do a market analysis and you go and you meet with them and say, well, you know, there is a little, you know, you've got this large home on five acres and, you know, you put all this Italian tile in it. It's kind of a one of a kind deal. Um, you know, the market's not going to be so good for you. You have maybe just lost business because you, you initially told them the market's great. They're going to wonder, why can't I participate in the party? And the way I try to get, I get this across to other agents is if you drive by the hospital and ask the question, how are people feeling in that building today? Wouldn't the answer really be, it depends? 
I mean, if you're in maternity and you just gave birth to your, your, your child, that would be probably a happy experience. But if you're just facing surgery or in pain from an operation, that would be a, something altogether. And the market's the same way. So it really depends on the segment of the market. Generally speaking, you can do the segments of the market where we are, $300,000 and down, is what I call the American Idol market. When you put a home on the market in that price range, and you, and you put a sign in the yard, cars drive up, like it looks like the tryouts for American Idol. There's more buyers than sellers. However, if you're in the half million dollars to million or million dollars and above, that market's a little softer. It could be even be in a little bit of a buyer's market. We're seeing downward pressure. Now, do you, do you see the difference in how I answered that question, how I, how I dissected that question as an expert would dissect it? Right. Because I believe, and we talked earlier just before we started on this about a book that I'm beginning to outline and it deals with the truths of real estate, the axioms of real estate. And one axiom is that in every geographical market, and I don't care where your listener is right now, I don't care if they're in Baltimore or Buffalo, every geographic market has every type of market existing within that market if they segment it properly. And the three different markets are Buyer's market, seller's market, equilibrium. If they dissect their market, you know, maybe it's price range, maybe it's location, maybe it's waterfront, non-waterfront, golf course, non-golf course, condo versus home, they are the experts. So if you dissect that, you will find that all three of those markets, buyer, seller, equilibrium, coexist within the same geographic market. Just like if you drive by the hospital, there's sick people, happy people, there's well people, and sad people. I mean, they're all there. It's, it's our job to understand which is which. I assume that you use that information then in your listing presentations. Not only listing, it's work, it, it, we use it in a buyer presentation too. Because, for example, if, if a seller steps into our, our office, and a lot of times our listing appointments are done in the office, not in the home, and, we, and they happen to have one of those homes, and I will show them. We have a big screen TV, everything's, we have a nice presentation we, we pr- provide for them. And if they're in one of those oversupplied markets, we're going to say we're going to have to be real competitive on pricing. And I'll show them on that basically where the inventory is, the months of inventory. Now, if a buyer comes in and they, and they want to buy a home in a market that's really moving fast, like I said, the under $300,000 market, we have to educate them. And we'll show them that basically if you want to buy a home here, I know you came down, you want to spend this weekend looking, you want to fly back home and then come back next week and take a second look or whatever, I can tell you the homes you looked at will be sold already. Now, they don't believe us at first because they're on some of the national websites and they, they, they think there's thir- 13 or 30 homes to see, but when they come down here, there's only four and they only like one of them. And by the time they get back to the office, that one is already sold. So we have to educate them on the market. And understanding market statistics and, and what it means helps us get buyers and sellers into reality faster, which, by the way, controls days on the market. In your market, do you have a niche or a specialization? I don't. Some of my team members do, for example, and my daughter has joined my team, and I spent 15 years selling in a particular master plan community of about 2,000 homes. I've sold over the life of that community the last 20 years probably 700 homes, and so that's a geographic farm for her. And so we specialize that in, in that geographic area. Our main specialty really is in our past customers, and I've been doing it so long that I have a, you know several thousand customers that I still keep track of in my database. 
And so we have ongoing programs for them because, you know, obviously the referral business and repeat business. That's a big, big portion of your business. If I recall, what is it, about 85% is past clients and sphere of influence. Is that true? Yes, or referrals, yes. The, the other part of our business is coming from the Internet. Not as many sign calls as we used to get um, because I think a lot of people are shopping online and we work a lot in some of the gated communities that traffic is restricted. Let's dive into your past client and sphere of influence program. Let's talk about the database first. Did you say that you have 2,000 people in your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Actually, I think it's a little more than that. I think, though, I saw some sort of um, receipt today from our our constant contact mailing. There was about 2,600 that uh, we sent out um, information on our Pi Day. That's one of of our events. There's a lot of different things that we do. Uh, Pi Day is for Thanksgiving. So we send out a coupon uh, or an announcement if they want a pie, just call us and we'll, we'll have a pie here at the office. They can come and pick up. And we do it every year. That's just one of eight or 10 different little things that we do throughout the year. So there's, there's you know, between 2,500 and 3,000 uh, past customers in the database. Those are all past client or sphere of influence. Could you break those numbers out? Do you know how many are past clients and how many are sphere of influence? No, I, I, I do not know. But I would say uh, if I had to guess, I would say 75% are past customers. What type of programs do you use to track that database? You mentioned constant contact. Any other programs? Well, yeah, our emailing is done through constant contact, but we use Top Producer for our um, contact uh, management software. Top Producer has the ability to email out through it. Why do you email out through constant contact rather than Top Producer? Well, maybe I'm learning something from you. Uh, I wasn't aware that was possible. And if it was, I I thought there was a limit on that. Uh, Or maybe it wasn't quite as powerful as constant contact. So again, I'm not the lever puller on that. I just said, hey, I want these out. And I let my admin figure it out uh, with our marketing company. And that's what they do. So you may be right on that. uh, But I I don't dabble in that. So you really are building the they-do-it model. Is it difficult to give up some of that control? You bet it is. And that's a learned process. Something else that's learned is the, uh, there'll be people that are listening that are basically hard chargers and you know they love the thrill of the kill. They love the adrenaline rush of a sale. There's something, there's something that happens in you that and I'm, not, I'm saying you really, I'm not, you didn't take advantage of anyone. You've really helped someone. And there's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of accomplishment. There's a sense of like, I'm going to put a notch in my gun, whatever. And, you know, it only comes from when you make the sale. And at one time in my career, I never could, I could never envision the time I would want to give that up. And I, I haven't given it up, Mike. Here's what I've done. I've replaced it. Now the thrill of the kill comes when I train my folks my team to go do that and watch them succeed, watch them start to work towards their goals. Tony, who's been with me a couple of years, a rock star, his, he, he'll list almost 100 homes this year, and his, he, his goal was 100. He'll be somewhere short of that. And about, um, I think I, um, 60, 60% of our business this past year was listings, 40% was buyers. That's, that's tremendous in a basically inventory star market. So our listing business is very strong. 
so he, like I mentioned before, he's a young guy, 28, 29 years old, just got engaged. He's going to have a wedding coming up in June, and he wants to buy his first home. And, and helping him get to that level and watching kind of a younger me, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, gives me the thrill of the kill. And so I realized I never had to get rid of it. I just had to replace it. And that allows me then to step away. Uh, so, yes, I'm a control freak, and I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, uh, not to step in. And when you it, part of the, part of the, uh, the, the, the onboarding process is that when they come in, basically, it's their job. And if you want to take it back, then why did you hire them? And so, again, that's something you learn. And I'm, I'm doing better at it. On your database, you have the, the 2,600 folks in there. Do you ever remove people from the database? And if so, why? Well, I have over 6,000 people in the database. We're only talking about past customers in Sphere on the 25 to 3,000. So, yeah, today's a good example. I had We just did the mailing on the Pi, uh, emailing the Pi thing. And so I think we had uh, the marketing company sent me an email today or copied me on the email that there were like eight people that wanted to be um, taken off. I looked at the names, and I didn't recognize any of the past customers. Not that I would know them all, but there was nothing that stuck out with me. My email to my ad- admin person, my client care manager was, because if they asked to be removed, I, I want to make sure they're removed. If they were basically a sphere of influence or a past customer, I said, take their email off, but don't take them out of the database. I don't want the mistake of emailing them again, and they get upset that I didn't honor their request. But I don't want to get rid of them either because everyone goes through an itch cycle. And so what? They ask to be taken off the email list. doesn't mean that I can't mail to them occasionally. And you never know. When you have the information, I can't, unless it's a client that is so, was so rude that I want to make sure we never do business again. And it doesn't happen very often. That's about the only time I'll take them out of the database unless they're deceased. Now, one thing you talk about control in systems and follow-up, one of the things that I have not delegated is my birthday cards. I'll send out, again, probably 1,000, 1,500 birthday cards a year, and I don't address them anymore. They're prepared for me. They're on my desk once a week with envelopes already addressed, but I will handwrite every one of them. I don't, I don't use a pre-printed card. I handwrite something in there. And, and then, I, then I have a local gourmet chocolate store that I set this deal up, Mike. It's really g- cool. I mean, this, this company is Norman Love. He's very well-respected, the best chocolate in the world. And I've set it up where I send them out a $10 gift coupon for to go in there and get chocolate or they have gelato and some other things. What's great about that is I have a chance to honor them on their birthday. The other thing that's great about it is if they don't take it in there, I don't get charged for it. So it's perfect, and meaning if they go, great. And it's good for the the, uh, the proprietor because when they go into Norman Lovely for $10, they'll probably buy something else. They'll probably buy $20 worth of stuff, maybe $30 worth of stuff. So it's a win-win. Here's the other thing that I've done late, uh, recently. Again, I've been doing this a long time, and even I don't have a lot of email addresses because when I started doing birthday cards and so forth, they didn't have email. So how do you go about getting your email addresses from your clients? Well, I started including in the birthday card a chance for my clients to win uh, something I've drawn. Right now I'm giving away an iPad mini. So in the birthday, I made a special little flyer that said, hey, how about having winning an iPad for your birthday? Just go to this website, fill out this form, and I'll enter you into a drawing. So they get the handwritten note from me on their birthday. They get the free uh, gift certificate, a $10 gift certificate for the chocolate. And then they get a chance to win 
an iPad. What's nice is then now they're entering for the iPad, giving me their email address, and so I'm building and updating my database as we go. Brilliant. brilliant. It works brilliantly. What percentage of the folks that you've made that offer to have taken you up on it and given you their email address? I would say basically, and this is something relatively new in the last several months, and we're putting uh, two months in the birthday cards, I think we're getting about 20%. That's pretty good. That's right. That's an email address I didn't have before, so it allows me to, to touch them the email instead of having to, to spend the money on postage. Let's walk through your entire marketing plan over the course of a year to your past clients and sphere of influence. You've mentioned some of the parts. Let's bring it all together. Could you give us a quick outline of your marketing plan to your past clients and sphere of influence? Right. Well, what it is today is, is different than what it used to be. It was better at one time. And again, I'm building the pyramids again, uh, but I can tell you what exists now. It's internet driven. I have, there's about nine times a year that I have some sort of drawing or giveaway. For example, uh, we just had Thanksgiving. That's Pi Day. So whoever wants one can, you know, sit and let me know they're coming in. Now, obviously, if they don't live here and not here on Thanksgiving, the fact that I offered a pie, it's still the benefit. It's like, you know, if I say, hey, Mike, you want to you wanna go to the Super Bowl with me the, next week? And you think, really? Oh, I can't. I've got to go to you know, my, my son's wedding. You'd think I'm the greatest guy in the world for asking you. And it, it's amazing when you do that. I mean, people have basically, I had three or four people call me, and I don't know what happened. They called me this, this past Thanksgiving and said, you know what? I, 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 I moved, and I don't know if you got my new address. I didn't get my card for my pie. You know, can I have my pie? It's a $7 pie. Are you kidding Sure, you can have it. And so, I mean, I've had, I had somebody basically said, I lost my card or I forgot to call in. Now, they're driving 25 miles from their home to my office to pick up a $7 pie. <laughs> it's crazy. So that's pie day. And then when we get into January, what I did is I bought, um, I love Broadway plays. And so I decided to use my front row seats uh, for uh, one of the major, the, the major performing arts center here. That has Phantom and you know Book of Mormon, Animal. Um, what's that called? Lion King. All the all the big Broadway plays come here, and so what I do is then I I, I have a drawing. Now that's different than a pie. Anyone who wants a pie can get one. I just send those to my past customers' sphere of influence. Now, the drawings for iPad tickets to Broadway plays I send to all six thousand, whoever I have emails addressed to. And because it doesn't matter how many people apply to win, I'm only giving away two seats. You follow what I'm saying? So it's if I were to give away a pie to 6,000 people and 3,000 would take me up on it, it would become kind of cost prohibitive. So I use Broadway, uh, Broadway seats for probably two months, maybe January and February during the Broadway season. Then Mother's Day, I'll have a gift for Mother's Day, uh, a, a drawing for Mother's Day. I had one for Father's Day and said, you know, tell me why you think, why you want to, why you want to nominate your, in fact, I just said, just nominate your dad. And I had this, these Omaha steaks and all this thing. And, and on the Mother's Day, I had a hundred piece box of chocolate. I went, again, I went back to the vendor that's helping me on my birthday and got this like $200 box of chocolates. Um, and so it's amazing. It just, you know, this is all free stuff. It just keeps me in front of them in non real estate related matters. It's not junk mail. It's not just let's have just sold. It's a chance to win the iPad I talked about. And then during Easter, we have lilies. And this is again for past clients and sphere of influence where I'll send it out if you would like an Easter lily. 
just call me. I will have one come by my office and pick it up. Again, it reminds them where I am. It gives me a chance to meet them. I have my picture taken with them. I have, we have punch and cookies. It's a time for fellowship, reconnecting, etc. I've had people call me many times, Mike, and say, look, I'm, I, I'm up north, but can I, can I have my son or daughter come by and get it? Are you kidding? Sure. You know, this is what it's all about. It, it, it's all about that connection, that relationship. Because I built my business on customer service. And the most difficult thing for me to let go of is the relationship with a customer. And the, and the truth is, I'm not even meeting them anymore. I mean, they're doing business with Denny Grimes and company. And I, I, I have a, a pretty good name here because I've been here a long time. They... And they never meet Danny Grimes. And that's sad. I mean, I still, I have to let go of that because I can't be everywhere and I can't be at 200 closings and all this other stuff. So I'm doing my best to give them that Danny Grimes touch. I, I also have, as ongoing for my existing customers, uh, a book club for kids. Basically, when I, when, I, when I get a buyer or seller, I get the information on their kids, their names, their date of birth. I send them a certificate that basically says a really nice little cartoony thing. It says, welcome to Denny's Reading Club. Here's a $5 gift card at Barnes & Noble. Go buy a book. If you read a book and you send me a report, it can be an email, it can be a mail, I don't care what it is, I'll send you another gift card. I will do that as long as you read. And it's been, it was a phenomenal, I've been doing that for 10 or, 10 or 12 years. Uh, I have the moving truck. That is, I had two moving trucks at one time. I just got rid of one. So I have one moving truck that's totally free for my clients. Killer. Basically, it's, you know, it's zero base. I have advertising on it, so it doesn't cost me anything. Back when the market was really killer, back in 2003 or four, I bought an eight-passenger black stretch limo. Used, but, you know, the limos always look the same. They don't look like a, you know, I think it's a 1990 eight or something like that. I don't even know, but it looks, it doesn't look like a 98. It looks basically new and who cares? It's a black stretch limo. And so this is a client added service that I give for my clients so they can use that limo anytime they want free. I have a couple of past customers, really cute couple that drive for me. They just pay the driver. They don't have to pay, you know, it's all taken care of. On occasion, for a special customer, what I'll do, maybe on a child's birthday, maybe maybe the child is turning 10 or 12 or or 16, I'll send them a coupon to use the limo free, and I'll take care of the driver. So why don't you take your take your daughter out and her friends to Chuck E. Cheese or go get pizza or drive around the neighborhood to hang out the top of the car and everybody wave. And you don't think they get a kick out of that? I mean, there's a saying out there, Mike, that if you want to get – what's the way to get to a man's heart is through his stomach. If you want to get to a, the parent's heart, work through your their kids. And so I involve the kids in the reading. I send the kids the birthday cards. I sign it, Mr. Denny. I don't care if they're two. They're getting a birthday card from me. And, um, and, and I make the limo available uh, and all that stuff. I just, I love that giving back. Uh, because I tell you what, you cannot outgive. You're sending out nine pieces a year. You have these nine drawings, the giveaways. You're doing that all by mail. Are you also doing it by email? How many cards do you send for each event? Is it just a one-time card, or do you do it multiple times? Well, again, generally speaking, the goal is to get the email, obviously, for cost reasons. However, there's been times that we've done mailings, mailings to specific, not to the 6,000 people. I don't, I'm talking to the past customers in my database or whatever that I, you need to clean up the addresses. 2,600. 
Yes. And so every now and then I'll do a mailing just to, to make sure that I, you know, if it comes back, you know, I'm sending it first class, so if it comes back, I'll get their new address. If it comes back and there's no known, known address, I'm thinking, oh, shucks, you know, they, they may probably moved and I'm, I might have missed an opportunity, but at least I can keep my database cleaned up. So I, I, I will do a mailing or so a year, but the bulk of all, all of my contact with my clients is through email. Do you contact your past clients in any other way? For instance, are you making phone calls? Well, if, if you were a priest, I would say, Father, I've sinned. Um, I'm not <laughs> calling my past customers like I should. And it's like the smoker who never quit smoking, like Mark Twain. I've quit, quit 100 times or 1,000 times. I'm not doing that like I should. So I'm just, uh, I, I, I know I should do that. But here's the deal. I don't like to do it. You know, I like to make the calls I like to make. And um, I know that I, I must model for my team. And and that is that will be on my 2015 that I will make some calls with them to model for them. But the, the thing for me, though, Mike, is that I built my business over time through marketing, which is a great way if you want to invest half your life doing it and a bazillion dollars. The path to business nowadays, the path to grow my business to the next level must pass through lead generation and lead follow-up. So if you want to spend 30 years in about, you know, uh, you know, half a million dollars, do what I did and just market the crap. I mean, I had billboards, buses, I had everything. I mean, I was everywhere and that's great. It works. However, the young people are coming to this business and are basically using the internet to capture leads and they're following up with leads and they're making calls and they're going to door knocking. I know, Hey, you know, there's, there's a no call list. There's not a no knock list. Um, and they're basically looking for business. That's where I must move my team next. And here's why. Right now, because the economic situation in real estate, there's about an 85% acceptance level of the product we represent. That means there's an 85% chance if you knock on someone's door or you call someone or, or walk up to someone in a restaurant and say, hey, my name's Danny, I'm in real estate, I see you're, you know, I saw you got out of a car, you're from Illinois, if you have any questions about real estate, let me know. There's an 85% chance that at least they like the product. Now, it's not like you're selling ads for Jerry Springer. You know, people are, you know, and that's a controversial show. Real estate is not controversial. Why do you think HGTV does so well? Everybody watches the the networks because they love real estate. We've got a product everybody loves. So get get over yourself and get out of the fact the fact that somebody's going to say no. They're not saying no to us personally. They're not even saying no to the product. It's just a function of timing. And so we will be going back to that model. And yes, I will be making my calls and, or I'll come through confession again. That is not what I enjoy doing, but real estate's about doing what you must do. And the one thing you must do and not necessarily what you, what you enjoy doing. So you recommend prospecting over marketing to ramp up your business without the overhead. Yes, absolutely. This will work every time too. play the lottery until you win. Then you have the money to go into real estate big time and spend it to invest it and you can build your business. Now that will work. And that's a model. I told you about models to begin with. That's one that will work. The odds aren't so good. The issue is that when people get into real estate, one of the reasons and I told you why I got into it, the one of the reasons people get into real estate is there's no one to tell them what to do. They want to be their own boss. That was one of the things I liked about it. 
But a lot of people fail. In fact, most people fail in real estate, Mike, because there's no one to tell them what to do. So they come to real estate and they go through all the whole day and you know what, their idea of lead generation was on the Facebook post or uh, answer an email or whatever, or maybe sending out postcards. That's not really lead generation. The money in real estate is through lead generation, picking up the phone and talking to people, knocking on doors, handing out cards. The big money is in real estate follow-up. Sure, you may, you may be real disciplined to go and call. I'm going to call some expires today. So you call three or four expires. You call three or four, four sale by owners. You call them twice. You call them three times. You call them four times. The money is in the follow-up. Everybody listening to my voice basically can understand that because we have been a buyer for some product or service, and you know what? We stopped in. could be a showroom for a high-priced pro, high product like a car or maybe it was a clothing store. And how many times do people follow up? And how many times do they follow up more than once? Not very many. That is the key. And so, I, 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 in fact, while I'm on this call with you, the lady who stopped to me, uh, up to me last night and said, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm in real estate. I'm going to team up with this other girl. I said, well, come talk to me. Well, maybe we'll talk about a team concept. At least I'll explain to you what your options are. She's already texted me. She wants to meet. But when she comes in here, I'm going to make a, a, make it a, plain dis, uh, a clear distinction. Because you join a team, I'm not looking for little birds with their mouths open for me to drop worms into. We, are, we, we must lead generate. And the beauty of that is, and I think it was Joe Girard who wrote the, um, the Greatest Salesman on Earth, is that everybody knows 250 people. Get one happy customer and never let them go. Make them a customer for life. That's fun. Those are warm calls. You get to know the kids, their birthdays, all the things I just talked about. Now ask for referrals because you know over time they know 250 people. And the best script, and it's one of the questions you're going to get to here, the best script to use when you're talking to your sphere or your customers is, will you help me? Now, that's not scientific. That's not profound. But will you help me works because we are a nation of people who love to help other people. And if you're in a relationship with someone, say, will you help me? Even at closing, will you help me? You have been such a fantastic client. I am sad that you're closing and I won't have you to work for. Can you, will you help me find other great clients like you? Do you know anybody else who, who's looking to buy or sell a home? No? Well, I appreciate that. Do you mind if I call you in a few weeks or a month and see how you're doing and maybe ask that question again? What are they going to say? Well, no, they don't mind. So that's, that's all it is. <laughs> I sometimes joke, and it's sad, that I think, I think in many real estate offices you could unplug the phone on an agent's desk and it may be a few weeks before they realize it's not, not plugged in. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV. Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Denny, you've mentioned that you are challenged with this, as most people are, to make these calls, yet you just closed uh, 120 transactions last year, about the same this year, majority of which is coming from past clients and sphere of influence. You must be asking this question through a different medium than the phone and your voice. Are you incorporating this question into your emails and postcards that go out, or is it just happening by sheer numbers, you're just sending out to so many people that things are falling in place. You know, I, I guess you basically, if you if you were to 
you know, vacuum your house blindfolded, you're going to get, you're going to pick up some dirt, but you're going to miss a lot too. And we're good on accident. I can't wait to see how good we are on purpose. I take it from your statement that it's more of people are just popping into your system. They're just, they're calling you up when they're ready to move because you're staying in front of them. Or are you putting a specific call to action in your emails and postcards that you're sending out? No, a lot of our incoming business is, you know, from a marketing standpoint, the call to action is really generated through our radio program. But basically, um, well, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. We can talk about it now if you want to. But the the programs that we talked about, the nine touches for past customers, is putting me out there enough that I and and the other things that I do to keep a an external um, top of mind awareness. I call it a, a pool, P-U-L-L, pool marketing philosophy. I'm kind of a local expert. I'm on TV every other week. I do the newspaper. I write a column for them every quarter. And they, they source me all the time for real estate information. Why? Because people want to talk about real estate. They want to know what's going on. And so I, I have worked my way into become the source, and people like to work with people that you know are, are the experts. So we get our share that comes in, and uh, we, we do our best to keep top of mind with our clients. But we could do so much better. Now, to grow our business, particularly from the listing side, because listings are leverage, we've used radio. And the thing that I want to talk a little bit about, if, if can we go in this direction now? Is it okay, Mike? Yes, yes, that's fine. Let's talk about the radio and the market expert as well. First of all, marketing, I don't like the word marketing in some respects because marketing does not sell homes. Do, do you want me to clarify that? Please. When I teach, and I love to teach and I love to speak, if anyone out there wants to have me come in, this is my little uh, shameless plug, I, that is my passion. Here's the deal. I asked the class the question, how many people have a well-priced listing that has not sold? And, you know, and a lot of hands go up. And quite honestly, Mike, it's no such thing. Price sells homes. Marketing doesn't. And I'll debate anyone on any level. I'll be like Muhammad Ali. You know, I'll come to Manila. I don't care. I'll debate any agent on the fact that marketing does not sell homes. But I'm a believer in something called I like marketing, but I don't really like the word marketing because sellers are addicted to marketing. They will, they're like, this, marketing is like a drug to them. They think if the more you spend on their home, the more they see their home in some sort of color ad or Wall Street Journal or a billboard or you, you have a sky rider, you know, draw a picture of their home in the sky, whatever. They love that. And, you know, they'll bleed you dry. And when you're, when you're broke, they'll go for another pusher. That's why marketing does not sell homes. <laughs> Price sells homes, but what we should be doing is not marketing. We should be branding. There's a there's a big and and subtle difference in those things. So there's a lot of things we should be doing, but we do it for branding, not for selling a home. So with that being said, let's go to my radio. Now that's marketing in a way you could say, but I'm not marketing a specific home. I'm I'm branding. Now. If the agent becomes the expert in their marketplace, they'll know which markets are moving. They'll know, generally speaking, if they're in a buyer's or seller's market. I can say that most markets across the country, I would say, probably are more seller than buyer markets, and that's changed over the last three or four years. If that's the case, then, if it's in a seller's market, generally speaking, inventory or listings are harder to come by. Agents, the biggest complaint they have is there's lack of inventory. Where's the inventory? And everyone's looking for listings. So how do you how do you go about getting a listing in a 
upward moving market where the prices are going up. If the, if the seller, like the movie Groundhog Day, wakes up every day and hits the alarm clock and Sonny and Cher are singing and his house is worth more money every day, what's the motivation for the seller to leave? So uh, agents need to understand that. And then what's their, what's their spiel? And here's, here's how it all evolves. From my radio concept, and I use this in print as well, is understanding the market and the nuances and agents, and you talked about days on the market, and this is all going to come together. Agents are out there sending out postcards and bragging about how fast they sell a home. So let me put it in perspective. You've got two Super Bowl tickets, and the two best teams in the NFL are playing, the most popular, let's say it's the Cowboys and, and the Patriots. And if you were to walk into Dallas, Texas, and you have two great seats that you want to sell a week before the Super Bowl, do you think you'll have any problem selling them? The answer is no. So the question is, what if you had 45 people that wanted to buy them and you sold them to the first person that came in and, and made you an offer? What would you think? Well, that's what's happening in a marketplace where agents are throwing homes on the market, selling them in the first couple hours, first couple of days, first week or so. What do you think is taking place? What do sellers think just happened there? The sellers will admit, and I asked that question, Mike, you know what the sellers say? Well, I think they've underpriced it. And you know what? I would agree. So in an upward-moving market, where's the fire? Why, why would you think it's better for the seller to sell it in two days or two hours? Well, I got more than asking price. I will argue that you, your asking price was too low. You got higher than asking price, but I bet you didn't get top dollar. So with that kind of concept rolling around, and again, remember where sellers have been for so long. Sellers literally have been on the mat, and the buyers have had their foot on the throat of these guys, and, they are, and they're tired. Now the, the worm has turned, the sellers are more in control, and they want basically a pound of flesh the other way. And, and that's what I'm appealing to. Is, so my ad, I have several ads. One of my ads says, selling fast is good but selling for more is better. And I go through my, my whole ad, ad campaign basically and I have this market and I sell 10 times more homes than other agents and you know what, if, if, you, if I don't sell your home, I'll buy it. So I have a guaranteed sale and I can literally, and I don't put this on the air, because I, but I do in my presentation can guarantee I can get top dollar for them. Now that is a bold statement in a marketplace where basically sellers, it's no longer a bold statement to say I can sell your home. Sellers are going, duh. I mean, there's no inventory. Anybody can sell in this market. But if I can guarantee I can sell your home for top dollar, if I can, I'll buy it. And by the way, you can fire me at any time. My listing is only for seven days. And I have a, a flexible commission plan. Why would you not want to talk to me? I am covering every potential objection. And it's getting me sit-downs to meet with sellers. And that's why 60% of our businesses' listings, when most, most agents in this marketplace are lucky to have 20% of their business listings, that's leverage. Did you say you have seven-day listing agreements? Yeah, it's only seven days. Is that because your market's moving so fast, or what does that mean? No, I would be embarrassed to sell a home in seven days. So it sounded like a contradiction to me. How do you resolve that? Does anyone ask about that? Yeah, you know, I mean... Sure. I said, well, here's the deal. Um, and I have, I, I have a hassle-free listing. You can fire me at any time. I borrowed that concept 10 or 12 years ago from Russell Shaw out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And it's based, and I ha uh, one of my ads says, hey, look, you know, I'm, not a, I'm not trying to brag. I'm applying for a job. I want to be your realtor. And if you're unhappy, you can fire me at any time. It's really a seven-day deal. I used to be you know, with one-day notice, but I got tired of people 
they think I have a buyer, they want to cancel. So it's seven days, meaning if I can't correct the problem, then just, I'll just give you an out in seven days. So if you want to, Miss Miss Seller, we can sit down here. You can come into the office every seven days. We can sign a new listing agreement, or we'll just basically make it for X number of days and with a seven-day out, how is, which way would you rather do this? Either way, it's seven days. With seven days notice, they can terminate the agreement, and that's why you advertise it's a seven-day listing. I just say you can fire me at any time. So, I mean, you can fire me. It's just seven days. And they, they, people don't say, well, any time. Like, yeah, you can fire me, but there's a seven-day window, which it, it takes to get the house deactivated from the MLS or whatever. So, yeah, I can cancel the listing. We don't have to allow any more showings. It's just seven days before it drops off MLS. So, anyway, so the issue is this. I have flexible commissions. And, and there's a whole a whole litany of issues that I do that, you know, if a, if a buyer comes up and knocks on their door, and I won't go into the de- details of that on the show, but I do offer that. So that's a concern. When seller, when the market's moving fast, sellers are thinking, why do I need you? They need us, but they don't think they do. So if you eliminate the commission issue, if you eliminate the fact they're going to be tied into a bad marriage, so it's a seven-day listing, or you can fire me at any time, and now basically, if it doesn't sell, I'll buy it. And I can guarantee you top market value. Why wouldn't you want to talk to me? Oh, by the way, I happen to be here uh, the most experienced and the most, not only from a time standpoint, but I've sold more homes than anybody else in this market over the last 30 years. You know, why would you not want to talk with me? I've eliminated as many objections as I can from a rational standpoint. And you're putting this in your radio ad? Yeah, I mean, everything but the guarantee to sell the top value because that's, I don't want some, some attorney to take me to tax on that because it's, Theoretically, I can prove it, but from an actuality standpoint, I don't know that it can be proven, period. It has to do with pricing. The whole pricing theory is this. So I'm just going to role play with you, Mike. You're the seller. So, Mr. Seller, thanks for having me here or coming in. Let me ask you a question. What's more important to you, time or money? Are you, are you in a desperate situation where you must sell in the next few days, or can you wait at least a month? We can wait a month. Okay. So would you rather have more money in your pocket or sell it faster? If I can deli- if that can happen within a month or so, what should be more important to you? More money. In my whole listing presentation, it used to be when I was spending about twenty twenty five thousand dollars a month in marketing. This is back when I just I just spent, I just had more money and more and less sense. <laughs> Good pun. <laughs> and, and that was S E N C E. I used to lay all my marketing on all the heroes and this ad, this ad, this ad. It would be about, you know, three and a half feet on the table. You know, we'd almost have to part the Red Sea so I could see them. Nowadays, I just, I don't take anything with me. I don't take any print advertising with me at all. I I take a a legal pad. And basically, I I have a a legal pad. I lay it down and I, I basically draw two lines and I said, okay, here's market value range. And, I'm, and and so in this top line here at the top of the paper it represents top market value. Here's the issue. In the market we're in, that that point of top market value is indeterminable. We don't know where it is. I've done this for 30 years. I'm a student of this market. I'm an expert in this market. I, I do a lot of blah, 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 all, the, all of the research. I do a presentation every year, you know, in front of 1,000 or 1,500 people right here in this marketplace. I've done that for 16 years. I, I, people know that already. I cannot tell you where that line is. And just a little sidebar here, a lot of agents will walk through the home because they'll tell me they've interviewed other agents before and they'll say, well, you know, I can get you this or I can get you that. I mean, 
when an agent says that, they've totally lost credibility, number one, to me, or they're so severely underpriced. If you have a home that's worth $250,000 and you say, well, I can get you two hundred, what is that? Well, so what? What does that do? So the question I have, and you've already answered, we're back to role play now, so you can wait a while. So the issue is if we don't know where top market value is, our only decision today, Mike, is decide, do we want to price it, and I put a point A, above the top the the top range, do we want to list at point A, or I take a point and I put it down at point B, which is below the range. If we're going to err, which way do you want to err? On top. Yes. You know, and here's the thing. You know, the, the agents that advertise and they sell a house, you know, in a couple of days, a couple of hours, where do you think they priced it? Do you think they priced it above or below the top market range? If it sells that fast, do you think you're getting top market value? No. I have never heard a seller tell me no. And I don't believe they are either. In fact, I can step out of role, and I, I might even tell a seller this. You know, really the best thing that can happen when we list a home and because we're gonna we're we'll be on the internet, basically it will be viral in a matter of a few days. Every every potential buyer in the world will know your home's available. And there's only three outcomes. Outcome number one is low to no interest. If no one wants to come to look at it, the market is telling us something. And we've learned two important lessons. Number one, the market value is not at that point where we listed it. And the second lesson we've learned is that we know where the market is. It's below that point. How far, we don't know, but we know those two things. So many times to list a home and have nothing happen to begin with is perfect because it basically the market has just confirmed that, number one, the market's not there. Number two, the market's somewhere below that. Now, can you wait? Well, if you're in an upward-moving market, you know, you can wait. It may be a month, two, three, four, five, ten years. Sooner or later, the market's going to get somewhere. But from a realistic standpoint, you know, I would I would much rather list a home and have nothing happen and lower into the price point than have it sell in a day or two days or have multiple offers on it right away. Whenever that happens, I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm going to go back and check my numbers. Because that shouldn't happen if you're getting top market value. If you're stretching the market as far as you can stretch it, that should not happen. And listen, you know what? You're going to, I may get hate mail. People are going to basically take me off and defriend me on Facebook. I have no idea because this is so contrary to what is typically done and typically taught. But I believe it's spot on accurate. So let's just assume, second, let's just go back to the Super Bowl example. Let's say you've got 40 people who want to buy your tickets. Two things can happen. Let's say you let's say that you're going to try to get three thousand dollars a piece for them, and maybe the face value is fifteen hundred. I want three grand. Now the forty people that were there, now twenty of them leave, and you still got twenty. I said okay, uh, well you got twenty people want these. Okay, I want thirty five hundred. And so basically, there will be a point that you can raise the, the ticket price up that maybe one or two people left. Does that make sense? Sure. Right now. That's that's the philosophy I'm following. Now, to contrast that with, let's just assume, will it work the other way? Let's say that you have $1,500 face value on your tickets, and you say, I want $1,500 for these. And you got 40, 40 people out there, and they say, well, we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to auction them. And so you bid up, bid up, bid up, bid up, bid up. And so the question is, and this is theoretical, unproven, but this is what I believe, is that if you price them low and then it, it's bid up, I do not believe the auction environment will bid up a house higher than if you than if you started higher and dropped down into it. 
And the reason for that is there's something called the seasoning factor, the maturity factor of a buyer that comes into our market. And if you allow, let me explain this process because it's really important. A buyer steps into a hot market like ours and basically has this expectation they're going to be able to go out and, and, and shopping for a home will be fun because I did it, you know, last time they did it was 1985 and it was just a groovy time. Well, the market's moving very fast. And to understand that, if you were to go on the and stand on the side of the interstate and watch cars go by, it they look so dramatically fast going by you, it's almost scary. However, does it, does it look like it's fast when you're sitting in the car? No, it's barely like you're moving. And so, as they step in, as they get ready to step into this market, they have no earthly idea how fast it's really moving because they don't have the right vantage point on it. So they think they're going to be able to look at homes, like I said before, and they're going to be able to find some, and they'll make an offer, and they'll negotiate, they'll sleep on it, they'll make an offer 20% below asking price. But when they get into the market and realize how fast it's really moving, they, they're going to get frustrated. So I call this the frustration curve. So day one, they're happy. Day two, they're not as happy. By day seven, they're frustrated. By day eight, they've lost three homes. The house comes on the market a little bit up or higher than the, the last comp. And that point A we talked about, they look at each other and say, you know, we've lost the last three. I'm not taking a chance on this one. Let's buy it. I believe that point, what they will pay will be higher than an auction environment. And basically, that's the whole philosophy in a nutshell, how, how I can guarantee a seller top market value. Because we're going to look for a seasoned buyer. So this works in a upward moving market. You're anticipating the movement of the market going up, number one. Number two, the strategy that you're recommending to your seller, you're also setting up the possibility that you miss the mark and you're setting up the expectation for a price reduction or a price adjustment in a couple of weeks. Is that part of your strategy as well, that it'll be reviewed every two weeks? And if you're not hitting the mark, you'll have a reduction? Yes, that's right. Let's go back to the three things that can happen. Outcome number one is low to no interest. So it basically means, and I used my hand gesture, I said, I, I, and I showed them, look, that means the bait, the bait is here, the fish are down below that. I even have a little cartoon drawing that they initial. That's out, outcome number one. So if that happens, if we don't get the action we need, that we, we basically need a significant price change. And we will know that, again, depending on prices, we'll know that in 10 days or two weeks. Outcome number two is we get showings and no offers. The good news is, you know, we're not too far off, but we're still a little bit high. We need to reposition a little bit. Outcome number three, it sells. So we list the property. We, don't, we get little to, no, little to no action. We know we missed it too, by too much. It's a lot like drilling for oil. You know what? We can spin, the, spin that drill in that same hole and wait for oil to bubble up, or we start to drop a bit incrementally. And there's no sin in a price change in the marketplace anymore. And really, it does not stale on the market like it once did. And I can go into all that if you want. We probably don't have time for that. The issue, the sin is to put a home on the market at, a, at the wrong price and keep it there. Because that is the same as drilling for oil and spinning the bit in the same, the same hole uh, you know, for days and weeks and years. And you know what? There's no oil. There's no oil. It's not there. And like I said, we know two things. Oil's not there. Oil's below that. So I will condition the seller. That's why I said, can you sell inside 30 days? Because... If I sell it in a week, I think, you know, A, maybe we got lucky. I don't know, but it worries me that we may have not gotten every, every, every ounce of juice out of that. We might have been able to price it a little higher. But after two weeks, we don't have action. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to reposition, Mike. We're going to go down to the next level. 
And so generally it will take one or two positions, repositions to basically pierce that top layer. And I tell you what, the market's efficient enough. When we hit that level, when we hit that top market level in this market, because there's so many buyers that want to be here, the market's sufficient. It's no different than dropping a tennis ball from, from you know, arm's length out. It will fall and hit the ground. The same is true. When we get a house at the right market price, it will sell. It will get activity before that. Just like drilling for uh, oil, you'll hit natural gas first, and the oil's next. Showings are first, contracts next. Always works that way in a rational market, and we're, and we're pretty rational. So, yes, so we'll lower it. That's why I say, you know, it takes the average time on a market of 70, 70 days, 90 days, or whatever. It's kind of meaningless because probably in, in our marketplace, you don't need more than 30 days to get top market value. But sometimes it takes 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days to move the sellers from denial to reality, which is – Denial, the state of denial is the most crowded state in the nation. So we have to sometimes work at them and show them that the market's not there, convince them that, okay, you can wait, yeah, but there's market risk, or we can lower to meet the market. And the thing that for an agent to also to remember is this. Share your successes with the, your other clients because you've got sellers that are in denial, and their only frame of reference, you could be doing a lot of transactions, their only frame of reference is they're sick, you're the doctor, and you're not helping them. You must not, not be any good. So if you're not sharing your successes through some sort of email, uh, newsletter, hey, um, to your listing clients here, here's our activity this past week. We, we listed three properties. We sold three. This home was on the market. Here's a survey we just received. I just got one in. Basically, sellers were really happy. Share your successes because their frame of reference is you suck as a doctor. <laughs> so you're, you're positioning the fact that there may be an adjustment, you're doing that right up front at the listing presentation to set the expectations that your objective is to get the most amount of money for them, but you're going to follow a process. You're outlining visually, graphically for them what that process is, that you're going to start a little bit high with the understanding that you're going to bring it down within a certain time frame until you get right in the middle of where all the fish are and they start biting at the bait. Yeah. It's all in the upfront process. I make them initial that, and I'm glad you brought up that point because, you know, it's it's so common sense. It's so common sense. I mean, if you are if you're in a dating era of your life, regardless of age, and you love sports, you know, why don't you go and have a cup of coffee with the person you're going to date and find out if they love sports? Because if they don't, it will be a problem down the, down the road. And so, there's an axiom in real estate and in life: it's easier to change the client than it is to change the client. You follow what I'm saying? If, if there's a bad fit from day one, it never gets better. It only gets worse. Those are the clients that beat you up and, 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 and spit you out and tell everybody how bad you are. They make your life miserable. I get buy-in up front. This is the process that I follow. And does it make sense to you? This is the process we will follow. If it doesn't work for you, no worries. We'll part friends and maybe I can refer you an agent. Everything is done in the upfront. From a buyer's perspective, let, here, how about this one? There's a lot of agents out there, and it even happens now that buyers basically find, find the house and they, they don't think you've earned a commission. Well, I can tell you with the internet and with all the tools that buyers' hands, and they spend about seven hours a day looking online for themselves, chances are they're going to find the home before you find it for them. 
So if you don't cover that in your upfront, listen, my job isn't to find it because you know what? You only have one customer to look for, and that's you. I've got a bunch. So just because you find it doesn't mean you're going to get to buy it because the skill is not in finding it. It's in the structure and the offer in a competitive market and getting through the inspections, the appraisals. The skill is in the buying of it. That's why you're hiring me. And if you don't cover that up front, they're going to find it. They're going to walk into a new home model center and say, well, you didn't take me here. Well, the bottom line is you wouldn't know that was a good value if it wasn't for the 18 hours we spent for the last four weeks looking. You follow what I'm saying? It's all about the upfront. And um, I'm glad you brought that up because if you don't click on the first date, yeah, time doesn't generally solve that. Do you do a a buyer presentation with your buyers before you take them out to show homes? Yes, when we can. Do you have them sign a buyer agency agreement? Yes. So you have a presentation to that buyer just like you would a seller in a listing presentation? Yes, we do. And again, it doesn't always work. And there are some cases that it doesn't work. For example, we are in one part of town, one of the geographic farm areas is 11, 12 miles away. And then somebody might be in that neighborhood that wants to see a home there. And so we're not going to ask them to drive 12 miles out of town to go back home to see the home that's across the street from them. So obviously there's some exceptions, but you know, here recently, and it's, you know, my daughter, she's 29 and the other ladies that are working in the real estate business, it's not just ladies. I mean, security is an issue and a hill to die on for me being the broker here and having people that are under my charge is that if they don't understand security and safety and just plain prudence, like, okay, well, I understand you're out there now. What we're going to do, there's a coffee shop right at the corner. We're going to meet there and we'll talk a little bit if that's okay. You know what? If they do not do that, that's where the four-letter word real estate comes in next. I'm sorry. You know, that, that's just irrational. And that's a hill to die on for me. Now, there's some people who won't sign a buyer's agreement. Okay, so what level of commitment can you get if, if you choose to work with them? I've gone back to a marriage contract. So I'll tell you what. Okay, if you don't want to sign anything, I understand. How about, how about this? How about if we kind of establish a, a gentleman's agreement? I call it kind of a, a marriage contract. And when you're married to each other, you don't date. You don't date other realtors. So as long as I'm providing a level of service that you want, that you know, we're, we'll be kind of like the team. We're married, and, and you know what? And you won't be dating other realtors. You know, so, you know, will you marry me? And it's kind of a funny thing. I'll say it right to a guy, to, you know, and shake his hand or whatever. It's just a big, big kind of a big grin on my face. It's how you say it. It's not what you say. And it, whatever. If you think that's corny, to leave out the marriage part. Let's just make it a, a gentleman's agreement. Get the handshake. You know, get some level of commitment because it's better than nothing. But here's the deal. In the market we're in, regardless, I've got 30 years experience here. Generally speaking, one, one side of the transaction needs us more than the other side from a perceived standpoint. Now, if you're in a strong seller's market, meaning the seller can put a sign in the yard and have cars come screeching up and want to buy it, in the seller's mind, I'm not saying it's true, but in the seller's mind, why would I pay a realtor? Right? So in, that, in, in a seller's market, who needs us? Buyers. And when buyers need us, guess what? You can set whatever rules you want in a, in a skinny market where there's not a lot of inventory, you can say, I tell you what, you got to sign a buyer's agreement. You got to come wash my car once a week. You got to basically name your kids after me, whatever. You know what? If they're a serious enough buyer in a tight enough market, they'll do it. Now, you'll have to go wash the seller's car, 
because there's, there's always a yin and yang. But go back to where the, the where we had all those distressed properties when the markets were falling and no one knew what was going on. Sellers were basically, you know, we didn't we didn't have sellers we didn't have sellers coming to our office, you know, driving. They were brought in by Medevac. We had a red cross on our on 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 our building because sellers were basically bleeding to death. And they needed help. Our reception desk we we called triage, and our conference room was called grief counseling room. We went through more Kleenex than we did copy paper. Now, in, a, in that market, sellers were in a desperate situation. We set the rules. We, we played the music. They danced to it. Buyers were like, I don't even want to talk about you about real estate. This market, the market's falling so, so, so fast. I don't want to buy anything until it hits bottom. The sellers were the ones that needed this. So we in the real estate business have to understand who basically needs this the most. And right now, generally speaking, buyers do. So don't compromise. You know, you only can work with so many buyers at a time, so make, make sure they like the music you play. Well, Denny, what drives you? I'll tell you. I, I, that's a great question. I'll tell you what drives me is, is the ability to have no ceiling, the, 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 the work in an environment with no ceiling. I'm sitting here in my office, and I'm on the fifth floor, of the top floor of a, a bank building here overlooking. I'm looking not far up the road from the place that I grew up back in the 1960s. And I remember growing up as a kid, driving down the road, leaving church, and all, all the other families on, after, on Sunday night after church were stopping at this Jerry's hamburger stand. And, and they went in there and they had a burger and milkshake the whole bit, and we never did. And I always understand it at a young age, but the bottom line is we couldn't afford it. And so I had that growing up. And, you know, that instilled in me is I never want to go through that again. I hated that. So it kind of put a chip on my shoulder. That I, I want to make sure that, you know what, I, I could have whatever I want, have, you know, beyond a hamburger. I want to be, basically have the power and the ability to have what I want, even if I don't buy it. The fact that I could go in there and buy a hamburger, the fact that I could go in there and buy a car uh, or whatever it might be, the fact that I could do it, even if I didn't do it, would satisfy that need. That's what drives me. And, and again, I had that. And right now, I'm, I'm building again because, again, we've had... I've had a financial uh, reversal, and I'm on the on the mend again, so I'm not in that stage now. But what really that that's the chip on my shoulder. But but the other side of that is nothing gives me more pleasure than to give to give. That's one of my gifts, and I long for the day that I can go into a restaurant and there's some waiter or waitress there that basically you know. You know, you, just, you 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 see yourself and then you see something and you, and you leave. You you stop and have lunch and it's $18 and you leave a $100 tip. Or you you just, you become a, a channel that, that God's blessings can come from him through you to other people. And you can, you can basically minister with what you've got. And that's what drives me. Denny, you, you mentioned something, and, and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but it might be helpful it sounds like you said you had a financial reversal. It sounds like things got tough. You were on top of the world. I assume from your statement that means you might have been at the bottom of the world. What lessons have you learned on the financial side, the, the things that you want to take and move forward with this time that you're building up that, that you didn't do before and, and other people could learn from? That's a fair question. I'm not afraid to talk about anything because I think we go through issues to to teach us lessons so we can be better and then we can teach others so they don't have to go through them. Well, I guess number one, 
I've learned that there's nothing for sure. You know, I know that in 2005 and six, and the market was going up, and I'm conserved. This is pretty conservative part of the country. I didn't do a lot of high leverage loans. I I had I bought the new building, had a partner in that. I had 10 or 12, 15 different properties around. I had a a boat, a half million dollar boat, an airplane. I had box seats in different stadiums and blah blah blah. But I was living way below my means. I mean, believe me, I had I had um. You know, I was netting over a million dollars in real estate at the time and um, and living what I thought conservatively. And here's the thing. Here's here's the thing that came into my mind. I remember thinking, you know, all those years of listening to Tommy Hopkins and Zig Ziglar's setting goals, all this stuff. Look, it really is true. Look what happened. It's here. I um, I made it. And, you know, the, the, the experts say that the baby boomers are retiring, 80 million baby boomers over the next 10 or 15 years, and, you know, 10 million of them are coming down here. Our market has got basically is queued up for another 8 or 10 great years. I am, you know, I'm, I relaxed. And I started, I started going to seminars and teaching, and people wanted me to teach. Teach me, Denny, to speak, blah, blah, blah. And so I started teaching, and, 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 quit, and I quit learning. And I think looking back, I quit growing I, and I, you know, things were working well and I was talking about my success. And so to put a, a bow on lesson number one, success has very little shelf life. So, you know, it doesn't take long if you, inertia takes over. If you do not focus on the things that got you there and, and change them and tweak them as things change, it won't be long before your momentum stops. In fact, you'll, you'll be stopped. And so for me, that's a lesson. I didn't really rest in my laurels. I just lived on my success thinking that I'd made it. And so I didn't have to put much effort into it anymore. And if that was true, why would McDonald's and Coca-Cola and all these national brands spend a bazillion dollars a year advertising a brand we already know that's lesson number one. Number two is I had a team. I had, you know, I had people around me and I let other folks make decisions, important decisions for me. And I don't say that from a victim standpoint. I say that from a laziness standpoint. I should have been involved and I wasn't. And not, not all the decisions were in my best interest. So again, I'm not blaming anyone. I have no extra grind with anyone. Never let, never let go of the controls. Always stay left seat. Don't get right seat in your business. If, if you're flying, you know what I mean. The captain's in the left, co-pilot's in the right. Never give up the chair. If you do, make sure, if somebody else is running your business, make sure you basically have good controls over it. And probably the biggest lesson, Michael, would be is the fact that, you know, I'm a, I'm a high D in Keller Williams language, high vector one driver. Let's get it done. You're more objective focused than people focused. So I wasn't I wasn't concerned with working with people. I was more concerned with getting things done. And when things didn't go right with someone, or I I got had an issue with someone, or I felt they had an issue with me, what I would do is I would become more compartmentalized. I would I would wall them off. I would say, okay, no worries, I'll do it. No worries, I'll do it. I can get it done. I'm strong enough to do this. I ignored one of the principles of growth and success is that you only can be your best with and through other people. I became an island and not, not, a, not a healthy thing long term.
Now, on the positive side, what I've learned about me, and this is what's bringing me back in the process, is that I'm a, I'm a marcher. Keller Williams has a class called Bold, B-O-L-D, written by Diana Kokoska. And, 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 one of, and she has a lot of these cool little laws. And one of the laws, which is so true in real estate, is keep your emotions between the lines. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I'm a marcher. I could have a great day. I remember one day in real estate, I had six sales in one day. That would whack somebody out so bad, they would basically take a month off. They'd be kicking their heels up and say, you know what, not me. Guess what happened? Next day, I'm back at work. First one in the office, I'm working. Then, you know, you could have six sales cancel in a day, and that would whack some people off. They'd basically get so depressed, they'd be on on Valium and maybe quit the business. Not me. I'm back in the office. First one in the office, I'm marching. You know, I I know we talked a little bit, you know, I I run um, marathons and half marathons, but I don't work that way. I work by marching. Every day I march. My highs aren't high. My lows aren't low. I march. I'm consistent. And I'm also, my last point is, I'm going back to that sponge I said I was at the beginning of the interview. I have spent more time and more money in in education classes over the last two years than I did in the previous 10. The previous 10, I was teaching. People wanted wanted me to talk to them, and I I, I loved it. I'm now basically a student again. I'm taking notes again. Denny, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Well, understand that business will come to you if you go get it. And the first thing you should start doing is develop a lead generation methodology. There's, there's people that are the young people coming into business that understand technology and aren't afraid to make a phone call that are doing $20, $30 million of the business in their third or fourth year. Real estate is probably the only thing that you can get into without a college degree and it will pay you more than a professional athlete over your career. So develop a lead generation mentality. Probably one of the best books out there right now, regardless of industries, the one written by Gary Keller called The One Thing. Read that book. Read The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, which basically teaches you how to make a million dollars in real estate and then go do it. And if you've already done that and you don't know who to call, a gold mine exists within your hand. Look at your cell phone and call people that are on, in your cell phone and let them know what you do and say, will you help me? I'm new in real estate and uh, do you know anyone who wants a fantastic buy and you know, or take advantage of this market? Let them know what you do. Start calling people and follow up. Believe me, that is the key to a, not only success this year, but a long-term, very successful and profitable career. Denny, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Well, absolutely. I mean, holy cow. And people have, like I said, people have lived before us. So I'm hoping I'm sharing some things out there with with veterans and newbies that don't make the same mistakes. And like, and I'm a sponge. Anytime I have a chance to learn from some, some top agents, and you don't have to travel. Basically, you can have it delivered to your computer. You should take advantage of it. Denny, you've mentioned that you got into some speaking and some training. You've pulled back a little bit on it recently, but do you still do speaking and training? And if so, where would people go if they want to learn more about that? Yeah, I love to share with with folks and I do keynotes. I do half day and full day speaking, um, dennygrimes.com. 
I love to talk about pricing theory, how to become the market expert, listings, typical success skills. That's my passion. So if anyone would like me to come talk to them, I also do some individual coaching. I don't do a lot of that, so there's only a select few that I coach at a time. I'm happy to talk to them about that as well, Mike. Well, Denny, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? You know, I just want to thank you, first of all, for the time and effort you put into this. And the people who listen to the show don't know how much time and prep goes into it. And then you'll take a raw piece and edit it down to the pearl. So I appreciate that. And secondly, is that I think of what's going on. I don't think anyone right now could find a, find a better time to be in real estate. As I look forward and I get ready to do my annual real estate update, it's called Market Watch. You know, there's a lot of things out there that are positive. And yes, we live in a world that can change with a drop of a, a bomb or a push of a button. But real estate right now is on a run. Interest rates are low and is a wonderful time to take advantage of this career. So I would encourage someone who basically is not fully engaged to get engaged because I, I foresee, barring an external event, a, a good run moving forward for the next five or six years. Well, Denny, you are a marcher. You go and go and go and go. You marched up to the top of the mountain, running a 26-member team, closing 450 homes worth $150 million in your peak year. Then you got sideswiped and fell off a cliff when your median home price fell by 75% during the Great Recession and your team shrunk to two people. But driven by your passion for real estate, you're rebuilding with the lessons learned along the journey. I predict you'll build a leaner, stronger, self-perpetuating team, and your thrill of the kill will come from mentoring new world leaders. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 179 homes last year worth $100 million. Find out who she is on the next Success Call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.